Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hello, welcome to Room for Growth. We're pumped up for uh, an amazing guest that we have today. We've got the holiday weekend when we're recording this uh, coming up July 4th. So I know I'm excited for some beach, some beer, some brats, all the things that I uh, love to enjoy. And we'll talk about it later, but a good book on the beach. Billy, at the same time leading up to that, the Ken's Lions Festival has been happening. And I know you and I weren't there. So we like just have been like watching on LinkedIn and, and Twitter with massive amounts of FOMO. Yeah, it is totally true. I've been following basically every major CMO talk that's coming out of that festival, just thinking about how I would respond if I was there having um, a much more in-person experience than I am today. But a few of my favorite things to just dive right into. So, you know, I have a pretty big crush on the CMO of Coca-Cola. He spent a lot of time talking about focus and subtraction, how Coca-Cola is getting rid of some of their zombie products to focus on more of an end-to-end experience for some of their core brands, which I think is really interesting, just sort of making their entire portfolio a little bit more palatable. And at the same time, they're also overhauling their agencies so that they can create better consistency. I know that at Willow Tree, we talk a lot about the power of subtraction and just removing things from your plate, removing things yeah. from what you do each day and from your areas of focus. So I was curious, Billy, what you think about when a brand says they're going to subtract and they're going to focus. Does that work? It's just become overwhelming. Well, I think what we see when we're talking to so many brands is this attempt to do so many things, especially right now when we're kind of continuing this digital transformation, we'll, we'll meet with a brand and they'll say, well, we're going to undertake this and we're going to undertake that. And we've been in it enough to where it's like, well, are you prepared for what that journey means? So it's not just in messaging, but it's all the, the foundational items in the background. I think the subtracting how many of those things you're trying to tackle at the same time is the, the smarter way to go about it. But sure, and the messaging side uh, as well, trying to not deliver too many messages at, at, in too many different channels um, is something that we're constantly helping our... How many clients have we started working with where it's like, oh my gosh, you're batching and blasting at an unbelievable rate. Yeah. Like, let's step back and tone this down. So yeah, I, I can get behind that. Yeah, that's like a great concept. The same one I think of, we work with so many brands who have done batch and blast for so long that then they really want to break that mold. They want to move to more like automated, more mature, more personalized campaigns. But it is really hard to convince right. a brand that has been doing things at massive scale for so long that it is okay to do less, do it with more value, do it with more intention. Yep. rather than just sort of like using their channels as billboard status. That was exactly the idea I thought of when I heard him talking about where they're going to put some focus on end-to-end experience. Yeah, and, and out of the festival, you know, somebody, t- you just talked about Coke, I'm going to go to more of my favorite brand, Pepsi, and somebody that we've worked with, Todd Kaplan, who's the CMO over at Pepsi and is uh, an incredible leader, incredible marketer, and we've, we've seen that firsthand talking about, um, I, I kind of read his quote as simplicity, uh, brand and agencies need to uh, reframe their relationship and put the idea at the center of everything. And from working with Todd, I know he's he's really focused on delivering, you know, starting with the idea and then building out around that. And that's why so much of the work 
that Pepsi produces and that he's leading is so impactful and why, you know, he was up on stage for some of their big campaigns that won some awards at the at the festival. Yeah, even on that front, some of the data that we're seeing coming out right now that is really interesting and relates to that is um, this notion that came out of research conducted by Edit and Ken and Carta that said that of the age groups and demographics they surveyed, over 50% of respondents stated that companies which were not applying personalization to their communications were unlikely to receive a repeat Mm. customer. So I think their bigger point was like, people actually aren't loyal to brands anymore. You can simply only change their behavior, that people are behavioral. And I think in marketing, you've known that for a long time, that like what it means to be loyal to a brand means that you subconsciously choose that brand when you're purchasing behaviors get kicked off. But it is really interesting to hear that personalization is oftentimes the trigger and the reason why a consumer would pick brand X over brand Y. Like what an interesting concept for the Pepsi Coca-Cola war where they're going to both really struggle to do that in a meaningful way. Yeah. And all kind of consumer CPG customer brands are going to have that challenge. And we'll get into that a little bit with our guests. It's not an easy challenge to solve. The thing to remember is that personalization has been this just like almost eye-rolly buzzword that people love to talk about, love to claim. And it's hard to do it really well. And there's so many technical and foundational elements that behind the scenes that are expensive and take time to build. But the things that brand leaders and technical leaders need to realize is I think as that research kind of implies, brand consumers expect you to deliver a personalized experience. And that better be a whole lot more than hi, Billy, and the subject line or the outcome. So you need to know me, know my preferences, know my product preferences, and communicate with me in a way that displays that. And that's where this trust relationship will start to deliver. But it's not easy to get to. So I think that's something that is a big focus. I think brands are focusing on this because it's kind of our next evolution that needs to become a reality. Yeah, I think it's funny you say that. Like, I almost, I always want to challenge brands when they say personalization is hard, even though I also agree because we work with so many brands who struggle to do personalization at scale. But oftentimes when we're working with brands and we're helping them figure out how to personalize, we're making like pretty simple decisions with them. We're saying, hey, why don't you take your most loyal consumers, call them something different, refer to them as your most loyal consumers, and just create a version of a message that has less education in it and more hype around a decision that they've already made. Like that's a pretty simple choice. Or especially in B2B organizations, we work with sales teams where we say, hey, you know what customers are about to come in and start taking a self-guided tour of your product. Why don't we take this manual data that you have about this cohort of 10, 20, 50 people who are about to come in and we're going to really like tailor their messaging experience to what we already know about them. But oftentimes I think what's hard about it is there's not a perfect out of the box automated way to do this at scale. There's no AI that's really replacing brain power at the moment to stop and segment people manually, put some elbow grease into the communications that you're actually producing, and then think really thoughtfully about scale, about modularization of content, about how you build in custom events to your data. I think that's why it's hard is it's this combination of you have to be thoughtful, you have to imply some intention, and you have to also use some elbow grease to build over time. You're not going to buy one platform and then wake up the next morning and you have like yeah. personalized marketing. Yeah. And that's sometimes folks start at the, let's just buy this platform and it'll solve our personalization needs. But at the same time, 
this is why we balance each other out. I'm on all negative. It's hard. Uh, you got to start now. And you highlight the very real fact that there's a lot of low hanging fruit that exists probably within anybody's brand and relationship they have with their client. I want to read you this quote because I thought this was like the best hot take. And as a tech brand, I want us to respond to it as a tech brand focused in marketing. So Brian Morrissey, I hope that's how I say his last name of the rebooting. He basically, he's Atkins and he says, if anyone doubts that software has eaten the world, come to Kins because software has eaten the media and advertising industries whole. It's just important to acknowledge that doesn't mean that advertising is going away or creativity is not important or that publishing can't survive. But it's hard to go around here and to look around at giant beaches and Amazon having a compound and not conclude that technology is driving the media industry, not vice versa. Wow. It's a hard statement to argue. It's certainly thought-provoking. I still stand with Todd a little bit on the idea and how that can lead. I look at the tech and the pieces that we have in place now as just table stakes. Like It's not this initiative that you do in 2022 to modernize your tech stack. That's just an ongoing... You hear, I have all these bad analogies, but I continually refer to it as this toddler that you now have that you have to continue to teach, groom. You're going to love it, but it's also going to hate you along the way. (laughs) And I think too many marketers and tech leaders are looking at this as like, all right, let's get that all caught up and then we can get back to doing marketing again. And these things are running in parallel where it's both not and or, in my opinion. Yeah, and on the other hand, you see Google makes a change around third-party cookies, first-to-third-party data, how easy it is to capture that data about your consumers and entire industries are completely disrupted, like full payment blocks. Yeah, Sounds like doomsday when (laughs) paid media advertisers right now are trying to figure out what even has meaning in the world. Yeah, It's such an interesting shift and it's so much power over how consumers spend money. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so one of the things that I love, one of my favorite campaigns of the year, Billy, has been McDonald's. They launched this campaign, I believe, during the Super Bowl called Famous Orders, where they ask celebrities and characters to talk about what is their order from McDonald's. And it's such a brilliant campaign because it's this campaign that every individual is going to relate to. They're going to see themselves in it. They're going to relate themselves to a celebrity or to a person of interest that they also want to be a part of. So I have just loved this campaign from the beginning where you see like Dracula's McDonald's order is just packets of ketchup. Whereas (laughs) like you can see what does Kanye always order from McDonald's and you can have both side by side. So that campaign was celebrated at the festival for the great work that it did for how it resonates, for how it has helped McDonald's really stand for something at a time where they faced the potential sort of loss of interest or just this idea that they were losing steam in their ability to, they were trying to sort of talk to everyone and thus ended up sort of talking to no one. But I'm curious, Billy, what, if that campaign resonates with you, what would your McDonald's order be? What's my McDonald's order? Yeah. Yeah. What's your McDonald's I have order? not grown up. I still go by Billy while everybody's telling me to change to Bill and become an adult. And I still eat the chicken nuggets. Like sometimes I even still order a Happy Meal if I'm like not super hungry. The chicken nuggets with a little BBQ sauce to dip them in. So that's what I ate when I was a child and I'm not changing now. What about you? I love that. 
Uh, my order, if I'm like on a road trip, or I'm running around, I'm going to get just a plain cheeseburger and a McChicken sandwich. I like the dollar menu basics. Simple. But if I'm like going bougie or I just like need a snack, I will pop in and I'll get an M&M McFlurry. Like hot oh. take, I think cold M&Ms in ice cream are so good. And people either like love that or hate that. I only eat ice cream from Dairy Queen. So I, I'm not buying a single bit of ice cream from McDonald's, but I will continue to get my chicken nuggets from McDonald's. Fair enough. Well, either way, congratulations uh, to Maureen Flatley at McDonald's. It's a great campaign. I love it. I think it's super brilliant, especially for such a large brand um, and to the agencies who work together to come up with that idea. Well, enough of chatter about the platforms and we got into the weeds quickly. And, you know, while I'm dreaming of being on a Mediterranean beach and maybe next year, Willow Tree will take us out and maybe we'll record some podcast episodes out on the beach for the festival next year. But let's get into our guest. Get ready for the the excitement level, the energy level to amp up because our guest, Ann Bono, who is the Vice President and Director of Growth Marketing at Penguin Random House, she's going to bring the energy. And Ann is not just a marketer, she's a leader. She has a, a leadership consultancy, human-centric um, is the name of that brand. You'll hear her talk about it. You'll see some of her swag that she's wearing. And Anne's going to talk to us a lot about a large organization and how to implement some of these changes that we've been talking about. But she covers a lot more, and we're so excited to have her on the podcast. And thank you so much for coming to Room for Growth and joining us today. Billy and I are pumped to have you. We joked we've been stalking you on the internet and we just uh, are like just the energy that you bring and the excitement. We're pumped to talk to you. And so with that, welcome and uh, tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Uh, What do you do in growth marketing and introduce yourself? Sure, sure. Well, I am stoked to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to this audience. Any opportunity I get to talk about marketing is always a good one. I'm often reached out to to talk about leadership and to talk about culture building, and but I don't often get to talk about marketing, which is what I've actually done for the past 20 years. And so this is terrific. I'm super excited. I'll give you my bio in a nutshell. So like I said, I've been in marketing for about 20 years fully homegrown, don't have an MBA. Back when I was in college, we didn't have marketing degrees. This whole digital marketing thing didn't exist. (laughs) You know, I'm old. I'm old, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, So I purely homegrown. I got into marketing because I was super into social media. I was at Yale when Facebook was starting to be a thing. I was an early adopter to that. I was an early adopter to Twitter, Pinterest, and I just kept raising my hand anytime a marketing opportunity was. People were like, do you know how to do this blog thing? Like, I do, in fact, know how to do this blog thing. I'll run the blog for you. Do you know how to do this Twitter thing? In fact, I do (laughs) know how to do. And the blog thing and the Twitter thing turned into the content thing, turned into the social media management thing, turned into the product marketing thing and cut to me 20 years later. And I've held multiple roles across multiple types of organizations. I've been in fitness. I've been in tech. I've been in publishing now, now I am the VP and director, should be fancy in my full full title, <laughs> the VP and director of growth marketing for the consumer marketing organization at Penguin Random House, which is the largest book publisher in the world. And it is a dream job. Awesome. And I get to put books in the hands of more readers. It's literally the purest job I could <laughs> possibly have. And yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Personally, like I said, I am 41 years old. I live in North Carolina. Me and my absolutely wonderful partner, Jackie, and our two kids live in a small town that's about 20 minutes south of Raleigh. 
And we are loud, proud, queer as all can be and super <laughs> passionate about all of those things. Awesome. That's amazing. Great. Well, thank you so much. We'll get into kind of all of those bits of information that you threw out there here throughout our time together. Penguin Random House, I think, is a brand we all, at least if anybody that's read a book at some point has stumbled across the brand. You said it's the largest. Did you say how many uh, different brands are there? It's a large conglomerate, right? Yeah. So Penguin Random House is the largest book publisher in the world. And it has over 10,000 employees across the globe. It is truly a global company. I mean, I don't even know exactly how many books we publish. I know it's thousands of books that we publish <laughs> every single year. We have six divisions in over 70 imprints. And I guarantee it, so you absolutely have multiple PRH books in your house right this second. Like household brand names, like Simon Sinek, for example, has an imprint at Penguin Random House. Adam Grant, like all of these folks that you would automatically know the names of. Glennon Doyle, I think maybe even Brene Brown. Don't quote me on that one, though. I'm not sure about Brene. But yeah, it's a huge organization with the aim of putting books into as many people's hands as humanly possible. That's amazing. It is. What are some of the biggest marketing challenges that you are working on right now? <sighs> Good <laughs> Lord, that is a huge question. Um, so from a personal singular perspective for me as VP and Director of Growth, Probably the biggest challenge that I am facing is just how very different this role is than other growth roles I have had before. In the past, when I came into an organization as a growth practitioner, which essentially means, by the way, like I hate the term growth hacker. That's not what I do. What I do is I build brands and earn the trust and engagement of people in an education and value-based way. That's what we do. If anybody tells you that they're growth hackers or growth ninjas, my eyebrow, I can't even raise one eyebrow, but I make myself raise an eyebrow <laughs> with my finger because I'm like, <laughs> what does that really mean? But in previous organizations, I had been responsible for a chunk of the revenue, sometimes 100%, at least 50. I had been responsible for the entire customer life cycle. So I was truly in charge of the actual hands-on growth of an entire organization. Penguin is different, and it's different in large part because of its size, number one, and because of the decentralized nature of the marketing that we do. So like I said, I am part of the consumer marketing group, which I equate a little bit to corporate marketing, although it's not quite like that, but it's not the boots on the ground, divisional imprint-based marketing of the authors and the books specifically. Now, we do lots of events with authors and we do lots of individual book promotions, but we are not responsible for the growth of the individual authors and the individual books. We are actually responsible for the growth of the brand. We're I am personally, in my job description, is the growth of web visits, retargeting visits, email lists, engagement with social. So all of kind of like the big first looks that you get, the big communications that you get with a brand, that's what I am responsible for. So in a very real way, me and my team were responsible for the name of Penguin Random House out in the world. And to me, that's the biggest challenge because it's hard for me as a control freak to be in charge of growth, but not actually run all of the growth. And so what we work really hard to do is do a lot of really good work, lots of testing, lots of experimentation, and then take those learnings and best practices and then give them to the other teams that are doing all of these decentralized teams that are doing their individual marketing work for authors and brands and and really, yeah, author brands and books and get them to use those as well. But they're at wow. liberty not to use them if they don't want to, right? Yeah. And so it's, ooh, it's interesting. It's a very interesting, we are forced to be as value-driven as possible simply because we are not in a position where we're going to force anybody to follow any of the best practices. We don't dictate, we simply encourage and test. So to me, that's been the biggest challenge is working 
intelligently within and effectively within a decentralized structure. Wow. What is something that you all do really well in the marketing sphere? If you were to hold up one best practice, one operational practice that you have that you think is just really stellar that other brands could learn from, what would you call out? Our use and understanding of data. I have never been in an organization that has quite as much usable, true data as we have at Penguin. I've been in organizations before where the content game was just off the charts. I've been in organizations where the branding game was just off the charts. But data from a marketing perspective is not just crucial, it's also typically underutilized and misunderstood. And so we we hyper-focus on leads or we hyper-focus on, oh, how many likes do we have in a post? Or, oh my God, how many MQLs? And all of that is out the window at Penguin because we don't really care about all of that. And so we have to focus very much on behavior and on engagement and on what makes people tick. And one of the most impressive things about Penguin is that most of our data is actually obtained and then used and analyzed via proprietary means, things that we've actually created in-house to report and house and gather all of this data. It's incredible. And that's one of the things I think we do really, really well. Now, Can we do more of it? Absolutely. Is it my literal road plan over the next 24 months to continue to use it even more? Yes. But data is something that I, we do an extremely stellar job of collecting in a safe way, obviously, right? In a a legal way. We're not doing anything illegal here, folks. NSA can just (laughs) fly away. But we do a really good job of collecting that data and understanding what readers want and how they want it and why they want it so that we can offer them more of the things that will let them continue to enjoy their reading experience. That's amazing. So the way I, when I think about Penguin House and your data challenge, it reminds me of some of our clients that Billy and I have worked with, um, Pepsi as an example, where oftentimes when we're purchasing a Pepsi product, it's at a grocery store, a bunch of different, a C store. And oftentimes when I'm purchasing a book, it's through one of many different channels in the airport, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And I know you have your own D2C channel as well. Mm -hmm. Is there like a CDP strategy? How are you bringing all that together? Or is that really not part of the data strategy currently? That is such a terrific question. And one that we're actually, I wouldn't say grappling is too strong a term, but one that we're really kind of trying to understand Right. right now. Because the way that we bring all the purchasing together, we didn't really actually have a D2C structure until the pandemic hit. And the reason we actually put it in place was because Amazon was very clear, understandably, and yes, we supported that fully, that they were going to deprioritize books, right? Right. They were like, we're going to reprioritize the things that people need to be able to survive, the toilet paper, the whatever. Like, we're going to put that at the forefront. And we said, okay, that's absolutely support that. But at the end of the day, Penguin Random House is a business. PRH is a business. We got to make money or we go under too. And so we actually put the D2C motion in place really at that time. But it's still not actually, even though from a data perspective, it's where we get the richest data, right? It's still not something that we prioritize fully. So one of the things, if you go to any of our product pages, what you'll see is that we have the availability for any customer that lands or any reader that lands on the website to choose where they're going to purchase their book. You see Amazon, you see Walmart, you see Target, you see us, you know, the D2C, like PRH itself, you see Books a Million, you see the Indies as well, you know, you see IndieBound, you see all of those things available. And we basically give the option to folks to choose where they want to buy. The challenge for us comes in the actual collection and organization of data, because obviously from a D2C perspective, we have the richest data possible, right? We selfishly, I I like, I want at least a significant small percentage of folks to buy from there because that will let me make smarter decisions from a marketing perspective. But ultimately 
most folks will buy from, where do you think? Amazon, right? So they'll click the Amazon button and it'll go, and we get some good rich data from Amazon, but from almost everywhere else, we have very little data coming back to us about what they bought, when they bought it, why they bought it. All we can see is the click with the retail click out. That's all it is. So we're essentially trying to figure out how to combine all of that data intelligently. What data can we use? How can we make decisions based on retailer data? And oftentimes how we can make stronger relationships with these other folks, uh, like on the other side, the targets, the Walmarts, the indie bookstores to see what kind of data we can get back. So the strategy is just right now, how do we combine the data? It's, it's yeah. There's no strategy, really. It's just like, let's take the data that we can make intelligent decisions with D to C, make intelligent decisions with what we're getting from Amazon, and then kind of moving on from there. So today, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about segmentation and marketing, especially to niche audiences, particularly against a cultural backdrop of events that are meant to draw greater inclusion. But before we get into that, I just I want to ask like one more question about Penguin Random House because you guys have to be doing this well, perhaps not you as a person in your day-to-day role, but as a brand. When you're working with something like 300 imprints, 70,000 digital, 15,000 print titles annually across lots of different genres, types of readers, how do you even think about breaking down reasonable segmentation or understanding who your niche audiences are and how to reach them? What, what are you doing well in this space? So from a imprint and divisional perspective, I think we're actually getting ready to move into this space, which is really starting to understand the, if you like this, then you might like that technology and behavior from a reader perspective, because imprints, especially, and I love that you brought that up, imprints especially are driven by individual specific books, right? So for example, we just, right now we're in, I believe we're still in pre-order for Bono's latest book, right? From the the YouTube singer Bono. Mm -hmm. And it's spiking. And we know that that's a very specific interest. So we're really trying to start to harness like, okay, if you like rock biographies, then you might also like this. So we do a lot of if this, then that. And we actually have proprietary data, not proprietary, proprietary technology that allows us to make those comparisons back and forth and, and provide that. From a broader perspective, in terms of like niche audiences and how we are able to better serve them and understand what they want. I think one of the things that we're doing extremely well is really focusing on multicultural campaigns. So we try to create campaigns, for example, one of our most, the one that I honestly love the most, it's called Always Black. And we've had that for about a year, I believe. And it is very much focused on Black excellence, on Black authors, on the Black experience. And those folks are coming to us for that content in those books. And one of the things that we're able to do with that data is go, okay, great. You've come to us for that. We can show you more of this. Like, let us do more of that. So we are trying to hyper-focus on, I wouldn't say even niche. I would just say hyper-specific value-driven engagements with the content that we have so that we can then say, okay, you loved this on pride or trans rights or black folks or brown authors. Okay, let us show you more of that because this is what you want to see. And you've told us that and that matters to you and ergo it matters to us. So we do a lot of that. We put ourselves out there in a cultural capacity so that we can both showcase this incredible talent across the spectrum of multicultural campaigns, but then also have the information to be like, we can now show you more of that because we have thankfully a vast, vast array of these incredible authors and content available that we can continue to showcase through that. Yeah, I love that. So many brands are focused on like cross-sell, upsell, multiple categories, but it sounds like for y'all, one of the unlocks is 
if somebody loved X, let's show them more of X. So it's kind of that Mm -hmm. Amazon principle of if they bought this thing, once in a while, you might mess up and say, buy another vacuum cleaner when they bought a vacuum cleaner when that's not what they're looking for. But for the most part, like what people bought in the past is what they're going to want to continue to consume in the future. I would say that's absolutely accurate. And because the thing that I, another thing that I think we do really, really well at PRH is understanding that ultimately what we are selling is passion. Well, we're not even selling passion. We are providing passion, right? Folks don't come to us like to, to use your example of a vacuum cleaner. I'm not particularly passionate about a shark vac or a Dyson vac. I just want to get whatever's going to get my room clean in the shortest and most efficient amount of time. But when I pick up a book, I am investing myself in it. I am investing my time. I am investing my passion. I am investing my knowledge. I am investing my brain. And so for us, what becomes paramount and most important is giving you more of the things that you love, showing you more of what you might care about, because that's how we grow readership. That's how we grow the written word. That's how we grow knowledge across the world. And I think especially in the world that we're living in now, which can be so divisive, so ugly, and so very intense in the most negative ways, if we can provide an escape or an educational opportunity or an ability to look and learn about things that you may not have been aware of, that's the jam, right? Like that's the goal. That's the golden ticket. And so, yeah, it's so much about how do we harness your passion to show you more of that passion and let that fire continue to burn? That's amazing. And compared to so many products, you know, even just Netflix as an example, it's fairly easy to find a show that you want to watch, but I can think of no, there's nothing more overwhelming than a bookstore sometimes, particularly if you're not like a avid reader that's in book clubs. If you're a, I recently, I'm going to the beach next week. I was like, okay, I want to read a great book on the beach. And all I read are business books in my personal life, typically. And so it's like, oh, gosh, I don't. And it's, if I were to go and say, OK, I really want to read a book by a, a black author today. And I did that discovery on my own. Good luck. That would be a major challenge. But if you can help consumers kind of find like, hey, you liked this book last time. And here's a great black author that you might want to uh, engage with to open your expand your horizons at this point. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you this much. If you're looking for books by a great Black author, try Dr. Ibram Kendi. He is terrific. And if you want a good beach read, I got a list for you. I do. (laughs) I do. But yeah, that's the idea. It's really to just let's make finding the things that you're passionate about easier. And then let's make you seeing more of those things so you can continue that journey better. That's the goal. That's always the goal. So, Anne, we wanted to get into this. It is the end of Pride Month. We also just passed Juneteenth. So it's the time of year that brands can either have a really authentic celebration of inclusion or they can severely miss the mark. And unfortunately, it doesn't ever feel like there's a lot of in-between. It's either celebratory or there's just a terrible sense of ick that comes from some of the campaigns that we tend to see. In your mind, what do you think is the difference between sort of like authenticity and just pandering? How can you help both consumers and brands think about a framework for how to be authentic? I love that question. And it's such a large question. Let me start kind of from the cultural perspective, not even of what the work that we do at PRH, but the culture that we build here. And I'll start it by kind of going even further before I started working at PRH. I I left the corporate world in a pretty large blaze of glory not that very long ago because I'd had some very terrible discriminatory experiences. Like I said, I am brown, I am Latina, I am queer. I am all the intersections of things, right? And so because of that, I have often been 
either tokenized or I have been discriminated against or I have been the only person who literally looks or acts like me in any given room, right? And I left it. I left the corporate world because of that. I was disgusted. I was, I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And when PRH reached out to me for this role, I was extremely skeptical. I'm like, oh, look, a giant company wants me to work. You know, I'm like, great. Thank you so much. And I was very hesitant to come and even interview. I didn't want to do it. I was, if I'm being frank, I was not just kind of dismissing. I was also scared. I'm like, what am I going to put myself into? This is a very world worldwide, 10,000 person company. How personal, how inclusive can they really truly be? And I have never been more surprised in my life than as I was going through the interview process. And I had the opportunity to interview with some incredibly diverse, brilliant people from all walks of life, like black folks, brown folks, queer folks, white folks, female folks, AFABs, non-binary, everybody, everybody's in here. And the experience has continued to be the same. Once I actually was offered and took the role and I've been working here, this is a company that actually truly puts their money where their mouth is, puts their action where their words belong and actually embraces that diversity. I haven't felt as embraced in an organization as I have at PRH. I am, let me put it this way. I'm wearing a sweatshirt today, but I'm covered in tattoos. I have purple hair. (laughs) I roll into meetings in a tank top and my professionalism, quote unquote, is not at all undermined by the fact that I don't look like a traditional executive. Nobody ever questions that. Nobody ever tokenizes me. Nobody ever wonders, oh, is she able to talk about stuff because she looks the way she looks or she acts the way she acts? That never happens at PRH. And one of the wonderful things that I see as an extension of that is our absolute willingness to day in and day out in the marketing that we are doing, we are tackling the tough questions. We are asking ourselves, is the work that we are doing for Always Black, for example, simply just a single ping on the calendar? Or are we going to do it year round? And are we going to be aware year round? And we do it year round. Yes, Pride is over and we had, we're almost over, sadly. And we had a wonderful Pride scene that came out, but we are getting ready to continue to talk about trans rights as human rights. Like these are things that we live because the people inside publishing, although publishing is an overwhelmingly white industry, Penguin Random House is actively working to shift that dynamic and that conversation. And we continue to do it. And can we do better? Absolutely. Should we do better? Yes, 100%. Especially, I mean, we are talking right now, the week after Roe v. Wade was was struck down. Is there a conversation that we are going to be having from both an internal and external perspective around what that means for folks to own uteruses in this country? 100%. And I can say that with absolute certainty that we will have these conversations around the hard stuff, around cultural diversity, around racial and ethnic diversity, around trans rights, around queer rights, because it's what we live internally. And is it going to get harder to do so? Mm-hmm. Are we going to keep doing it? Bet your butt we are. <laughs> um, I try not to swear. I don't know what this podcast is rated. <laughs> but yeah, I think to kind of answer the underlying question here, where I think companies miss the mark is when they rainbow wash their logo and donate their money to causes that don't support that rainbow, right? That's a great example. And we saw that all over the place this past June. And where I think companies miss the mark is when they have these beautiful Juneteenth campaigns, and yet you look at their mascots and not a black face or a brown face to be seen, right? To me, marketing is only window dressing. If the actual internal workings of an organization don't reflect that diversity. So I don't care if you have a DEI officer, if I'm not seeing an actual representation 
of the folks that you're supposed to be serving for that diversity, equity, and inclusion within your organization. I don't care if you have a rainbow logo, if what I'm seeing is you donating to politicians who support anti-gay causes. So that's where companies miss the mark. The marketing can be beautiful. The intention and the action is what actually matters. And that's why I'm proud to work at PRH, because I don't ever feel like my existence at this organization is a burden. I actually feel like my existence at this organization is celebrated and encouraged and seen as a culture ad and a necessary and beautiful one. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing and inspirational. Just a kind of an add on to that overall question. You really got into the bigger picture in terms of brands really have to back up what they're putting out into the market. And that's uh, 100% true. What about brands, you know, in marketing on the day to day level? It's so easy. Uh, Billy and I have been part of this. I'm sure you have where you mess up an email subject headline that misses the mark. And maybe it even went through the channels and the review channels. And it just comes across a little bit wonky, whatever you might define as wonky. What do you think brands should do when they mess up? So definitely the culture has to back up what the brand is putting out there. But on the day-to-day level, what, what do you think a brand should do when they make a mess up in more of the marketing channels that we deal with every single day? Email, push, in-app messages. I think the answer is super simple. You own it. You own it. It's this fear of admitting that we messed up that's actually keeping us from progress and learning in marketing. I mean, in life, but in marketing especially. What is the absolute worst thing that can happen if you say, hey, y'all, so sorry, (laughs) messed up here. What exactly are we so afraid is going to happen? Right. Truly, like truly, I'll say this. One of the things that I constantly tell my teams is I don't care if you fail. I really don't. In fact, I would prefer that you fail because when you're failing, you're experimenting. Sometimes we just mess up because we mess up, but oftentimes we're failing because we're experimenting and something didn't quite hit the mark. I don't care if you fail. The only time I start caring is when you fail the same way twice. And that's because that means you didn't learn from your mistake. You didn't realize that you made a mistake. You didn't own your mistake and then take steps to either rectify it or grow from it. That's the only time I care about. When a marketing campaign doesn't hit the mark, you step back, you analyze what happened. And if other people outside were affected for whatever reason, you own it, you apologize, and you do better and move on. Yeah. That's it. It's To me, it's super, super simple. We have to let go of the fear of failure. The fear of failure only defines us if we don't accept that we failed and we grow from it. That's it. That's it. And an organization is absolutely allowed to make mistakes. We are, it's, we're human. We, you know, what are we expecting? And I think I won't go on quite on as big a, a soapbox here, <laughs> but I will say this. I think that in marketing, we are unfairly placed to a standard that is entirely too high in terms of perfection. We are expected to never screw up. We are expected to always hit the mark. We are expected to always know exactly who to hit and how to hit with what messaging at the exact right time. And what's the time that you should send the email? And oh my God, did you set up the retargeting? Why isn't it performing? And sales is yelling at you and CEOs. And why, why are we held to a standard of perfection that is simply not the case in life, but especially within an organization? Why? And it's easy to say, well, it's the most visible, and it is, right? 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 Our mess-ups are more public than the standard mess-up of other other departments, but that doesn't mean we should be held to a higher standard of perfection. It simply means that our mess-ups require potentially public apologies. (laughs) And that's it. So just cut marketing a break, let us screw up. In fact, you want us to screw up because it means we're trying new stuff. 
And if we screw up, we apologize. I think that's totally true. I think being authentic in an apology and raising awareness, especially once you have an awareness that something may miss or may alienate people. For instance, I think there's a lot of awareness right now around like Mother's Day and Father's Day campaigns to be really mindful Mm -hmm. of letting people know they can opt out of those campaigns because they can hit such an important relationship and trigger moment. But when you're responsible for growth, I think at your core, what you're trying to do is change people's behavior. And we're trying to do that. I know I've been guilty of this. You're basically testing, do we go with um, something that's going to trigger a more negative emotion? Will that drive better growth or a more positive emotion? Is that going to create a better click-through rate? So like one example of this that I see that I think is really unintentional is a brand that I actually love. I use Mint's products all the time. I think they're a financial education and monitoring app. But their population is mostly like younger, less affluent, less financially savvy users. And they oftentimes will send subject lines that have almost this like really negative connotation around um, your ability to save or how your net worth is changing, where they'll say things like, compare your spending to mentors, or is your credit usage impacting your credit score? I think sometimes even things like that, if you are like not a very financially savvy audience and you're getting this subject line in your inbox that can create this sense of fear so that you click on it and you like get into their product. I don't know. Like, what do you think is the responsibility of that's that's not an egregious example. It's not uninclusive, but for me, that one sort of like toes an interesting line. Where do you think that line is? So I think that as marketers, we are responsible for the emotions that we elicit in people. And that's a power. That's an actual power. I think folks forget. So uh, the primary tool that we have as marketers are words. And I think we forget how powerful words can be. And it is our responsibility to wield those words responsibly and in a kind and caring way. And I can tell you that headlines like those that you read would actually probably elicit a fair amount of panic in me. I don't want to know if my credit, like I immediately go, oh my God, is it, is it? (laughs) It would be so much easier to say, learn about how your credit usage can impact your credit score. Why don't we go with that? (laughs) Right? We're saying the same thing, but we are couching it in the, instead of freaking you the hell out, We're couching it. How about you learn on a thing? And I get it. What we want is people to click. But if we're clicking because they're scared, that's fear mongering. It's so much of what marketing needs to be is focused on value add and education, because that's how we build long lasting relationships with our audiences and with the people. The the equation that I always say is marketing starts with understanding what the needs of your audience, educating those needs with valuable content, because that leads to trust And over time, that trust turns to love. And over time, that love actually turns to money. But that should never be the goal because that will come naturally if what your focus is harnessing the intelligence and the education and the value of the need that the customer needs. You do that and you don't need to do that with fear. If you're doing that with fear, then you're probably not positioned correctly. You know, it sounds harsh, but it's true. That's fear is a rookie move. Fear mongering is a rookie move. That's a boom mic drop type of statement there. Totally love it. With that, as we start to wind our time down together, you describe yourself as violently happy. I mentioned we were internet stalking you earlier, and we'll let people know where they can find you on the internet. What's that mean to you? And uh, what's one lesson you could share with folks and and how to be violently happy? Violently happy. Uh, You know, it's interesting. That's one of the most common questions that I get. And (laughs) I absolutely owe that entirely to my partner, Jackie, who describes me who was the first person to describe me as a violently happy individual. They are an empath. And one of the things when we first started dating, one of the things that they told me was that being around me was like being around 
an always charged battery that they could draw energy from. It was great. She's like, being able to be around you is like forever hugging onto a positivity battery. It feels amazing. It's like a drug. I'm like, well, I'm here to be your drug. But I think for me, what it is, is I think I'm just wired that way. I honestly, there's nothing I do necessarily on a day-to-day basis that goes, I'm going to be violently happy today. I just think that it takes a lot more energy to be angry and sad and hateful than it takes to be happy. Your default, it's easy to be happy. It's easy for me if you let people live the life that they want to live. If you let people exist in the way that they want to exist, stop concerning yourself with how to control others. Control is an illusion. And so the minute you let go of that control and focus on what makes you happy, what makes you feel fulfilled, what makes you feel good, it becomes, for me, easier to embrace that happiness and then put that happiness out. Because again, I'm not particularly religious. I, in fact, I'm agnostic, probably atheist at this point, the way the world has gone the last couple of years, definitely atheist. But for me, the world gives you back what you put in it, whether you think that's through religion or through energy or through the universe, the world gives you back what you put in it. So if I am putting out violent happiness all the time, I have a greater chance of getting violent happiness right back. And to me, that's the vibe. Like why spend my time being angry or upset when I can, and I'm fortunate to be able to do this, but when I can choose to be happy, where I can choose to let that shine. And I find also that when I do that, I tend to be able to bring that happiness to others. And that to me is probably one of the most valuable things I can contribute is I can contribute my voice. I can contribute my diversity. I can contribute my enthusiasm and I can contribute my obnoxiously intense optimism and happiness (laughs) because there's not near enough of that out there. And the more that I can do that, I think the better the world can be, even if it's just a smidge to my immediate circle. Love it. And I want to clear the day and keep talking to you forever. Um, But in interest of time, if more people just need a little bit more of that battery power, they need some influence to understand how they can weaponize their own happy to make the world a better place. Where can they find you on the internet? Do a quick drop of where any listeners could come check out more Anne content. Sure, sure, sure. So I live primarily on two social platforms. I live on LinkedIn and I live on TikTok. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, you can find me there at Anne Bono. So A-N-N-E-B-O-N-O. Can't miss it. My profile is green and hot pink. You cannot miss my face. And you'll see the same profile pic if you go to TikTok. And there I am leadership coach Anne because outside of my VP of growth responsibilities at PRH, I'm also a leadership coach actually upcoming author and also speaker. And I post so many videos around how to be a better leader and how to be a better manager there as well. So those are the two places. If you're really looking for violent happiness, I recommend TikTok because that's where you get the whole experience, like visual, audio, all the things. Come and hang out with me there. Yeah. I checked out your TikTok profile and I laughed. I learned a little bit and then I laughed some more. So I totally recommend folks uh, check that out. And then selfishly, we're heading into a long weekend and you promised us some beach reads. What do you recommend? Oh my God. So, you know, I am not going to be the best recommender of that because I actually, (laughs) I'm in the middle of reading a whole bunch of Harvard Business Review articles. So I have not, but what I can do is recommend that you go to penguinrandomhouse.com and take a look at one of our read down beach read lists. 
because we actually did just launch them. I am boring, y'all. Like, I look like I'm a lot of fun on the outside, but really, <laughs> all I want to do is watch Netflix cooking shows and read Harvard Business Review. So I am not a beach read kind of person, right? But I can tell you that we have lots of amazing beach reads listed on PRH.com. So please, by all means, come on and take a look at it. Sure. Well, I think Harvard Business Review counts as a beach read. <laughs> They're with you. We're the same I mean, type of weird. <laughs> right? I just took my latest issue to the pool. I mean, come on. It's <laughs> you two do the beach different than I do then. This is, that's a, uh, obvious. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. And thank you so much. Your energy, your violent happiness is something that uh, on, it's a Monday when we're talking. I'm planning on, on using it as fuel for the rest of the day. And I know our listeners certainly appreciate the advice and some of the learnings that you've experienced out there in the marketing world. And we thank you so much for giving us your time today. I appreciate y'all giving me a platform to be violently happy and unapologetic. (laughs) Thanks, Anne. 